Turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. We got back last night at 11 o'clock. We spent the week in Pennsylvania visiting our daughter up there. We went to all the quilt stores. It actually is a lot of fun because I sit on the front porch and they all have rocking chairs and I read my book and they look at quilts. It's great. My son-in-law and I went, uh, well, he rode his motorcycle and I rode his scooter through the Gettysburg battlefield. That was fun. So we had a good time, but my daughter's dog still hates me. I have been to their house for, I don't know, 10 years, and the dog has never not barked at me, ever. No matter how long I'm there, the dog has never not barked at me. So... We are picking up in verse 11 of chapter 3 of 1 John. If you remember, we read verse 11 last week, and then we got sidetracked. Verse 11 says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And we got sidetracked talking about what love is. We went over to 1 Corinthians 13, and learn that love is patient, kind, not rude, not boastful, does not seek its own way, etc., etc. And we all decided we don't do very well at that. But we're going to go back to 1 John today, and we're going to read the passage about loving the brothers. That is, loving those within the Christian community. Remember, I mentioned last week that when we normally look at 1 Corinthians 13, we're thinking about marriage. So on one end, you have loving your spouse, which you ought to do. And at the other end, there's a whole bunch of verses that say you're supposed to love your enemies. I mean, loving your spouse is one thing, but loving your enemies? And no, don't talk to me about whether they're the same people or not. <laughs> but we are going to talk about this middle group. And that is loving the person who's sitting on the row with you. Loving the person who is in the pew with you. And that can be difficult. So we're going to start with a bad example, and then we're going to move on to a good example. The bad example being Cain and Abel. The good example being Jesus. So, picking it up again. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Why does he say from the beginning? What is the beginning? Well, it could be the beginning of time, probably not. The beginning of when they heard the gospel. When Paul, I mean, when John first preached the gospel to them, he said, by the way, love each other. Everything he talked about, by the way, love each other. If you go back to the gospel of John, he talks about Christ dying for us, Christ demonstrating his love for us, and we are to demonstrate our love by loving each other. So John is saying, this isn't anything new. I've told you this from the very beginning. Love one another. <sighs> that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Hmm. Let's go back to the very beginning to get the bad example. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. If you will, turn over to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll talk about this for just a moment. I mean, if I were going to pick an example of not loving the brothers, I'm not sure I would pick this, although it's definitely a brother. Okay? Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife. This is chapter 4, verse 1. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Okay, you're familiar with this story. Cain is out growing the crops. Abel is out raising the flocks. So it's time to give an offering to God. Now it is interesting, most commentaries will tell you that there has to have been some point where God explained to them what a proper offering ought to be. We know, since we have the entire scripture in front of us, we know that the Old Testament sacrifices were a picture of what Christ was going to do for us. We know that. But we also know that at some point, people had to learn that. So the general thought is that at some point, God had instructed Adam and Eve, or Cain and Abel, this is what a proper sacrifice looks like. And a proper sacrifice involves the shedding of blood. Now, there are, when we get to the book of Leviticus, there are grain offerings, but those are for special conditions, and they are not the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sin. Okay? So Cain, being a farmer, grabs some of his wheat, maize, whatever he was growing, and he carts it off and says, here, God, this is yours. Abel brings his lamb, slits the throat, and said, God, this is yours. And God says, Abel, great job. Cain, eh, you need to work on it. Now, as I said, most commentaries will lead you to believe that God had instructed them. I've always kind of had the opinion that this could be the instruction. This could be the time where God is telling them, okay, Abel, that's correct. Cain, you need to work on it. And Cain's response ought to have been, thank you, God, for instructing me. Next time, I'll take some of my grain. I'll go to Abel. I'll purchase an animal, and I'll sacrifice the animal like I'm supposed to do. But Cain didn't do that. Instead, Cain got ticked off. What we have here is an act of worship. We have a proper act of worship and an improper act of worship. And the guy who has the improper act of worship is really ticked off at the person who has the proper 
act of worship. And you know the rest of the story. Cain kills Abel. God comes along and says, where's your brother? And the famous line, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. And he curses Cain, and that's the rest of the story. Now, you're John, and you're talking about loving one another. Why do you pick this story to begin with? Let's read the next sentence. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. Don't be shocked, brothers, that the world hates you. He's going to talk about loving the brothers, and he throws in this phrase, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Abel was worshiping God correctly, and Cain hated him for it. John is telling the people how to worship God correctly. Love your brother. And he's reminding them that just like Cain, who was unrighteous, in fact, he says he was doing the deeds of Satan, Cain, who was unrighteous, hated the righteous Abel. The world is going to hate those of us who are doing that which God tells us to do. And this takes two forms. You remember back several weeks ago, the lesson. John in this chapter is giving us two evidences of our salvation. Not causes of our salvation, evidences of our salvation. The first evidence is righteousness. We are actually doing what God instructs us to do. Okay? The second evidence is love. Now, if we, like Abel, are doing righteous deeds, the unrighteous Cain, the unrighteous world, is going to hate us for it. Now, that's weird. You would think that if I were doing good things, People would like me. But if you look at the scripture, nah, not so much. Jesus, in every situation, did the right thing. And look what it got him. They killed him. So why does John begin with this? Because he wants us to know that you are to love each other and you're not to murder each other. More about that in the next verse. And you shouldn't be surprised that when you're loving the brothers, the world is going to look at you and say, I hate you for it. So, John is telling us not to be like the world. Don't be like the world. Don't hate the brothers, 
ancestors. In fact, one of the verses that we talk about in just a moment, some of the copies actually do put in brothers and sisters. Okay, We are talking about fellow members of the church. We are called, from the very beginning we have been called, to love those in the Christian community. Let's keep going. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderers has eternal life abiding in him. Okay. Pretty simple, right? We can just say, yeah, that's easy. Let's do that, and let's go on. But maybe it's not that easy. We know that we have passed. Remember, he's talking about how we know that we are saved. Not how we are saved, but how we know that we are saved. The first half of the chapter, by being righteous. The second half of the chapter, by loving the brothers. This is how we know that we have passed from one camp to another camp. The camp of death, that is Satan, to the camp of God, that is life. How do we know that? We love the brothers. Now, who are the brothers? Take a peek down the row, and those are the brothers. And we talked about this last week. Take a peek at the church down the road. I mean, we'll assume it's one of the good ones, right? But it's not our church. But you're supposed to love them too. Those who have a connection with Christ are to love each other regardless of, well, they like that kind of music, I like this kind of music. Okay, don't listen to their music. But you're still supposed to love them. They vo- We talked about that last week, we're not going back there. <laughs> and that's the strange thing. Do you know what the most divisive issue in the church today is? It's not music. It's not some theological discussion about predestination or anything. It's politics. It is. I was telling Don, this month's Atlantic magazine, which is a non-Christian liberal magazine, had an article about the evangelical churches responding to the political situation. And you have this one church who is very pro the previous president, and lots of people are coming, and you have this church who is trying to set the record straight, and you have this church who's trying to stay out of it. And guess what? They all hate each other. (laughs) Why? Did you know that your, I guess, grandchildren are more likely to marry someone of a different religion than to marry someone of a different political party. Did you know that? Why? 
because politics is the divisive issue in the church. Now, am I saying we can't have differences? No, of course we can have differences. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's only one command. Love the brothers. And you know what? That's hard to do. Don't be like Cain, who hated his brother. Don't do that. This is how we know we have passed from one camp to the other camp. That we love one another. What does that mean? That means I, well, let's talk about that in just a moment. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say to you, and it goes through this three-step process of if you're angry with your brother, if you're uh, calling him a fool, then you're in trouble. No one who hates his brother has God abiding in him. How many of you do not, under any circumstances, raise your hand? (laughs) How many of you have some person who, in your more rational moments, you have to confess they probably are a Christian, but you really, really don't like them? In fact... Let's just kind of move the next step and say you hate them. Now, is that a problem of the guy? Could be. But the scripture right here is saying that if you hate them, you're a murderer and God is not abiding in you. What are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to set them straight, right? You're supposed to make them repent. You're supposed to beat them into doing the right thing. No, you are supposed to love them. You are supposed to love them. Now, I do think it's interesting. Um, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Just as an aside, just to make sure you understand... I happen to suspect you're going to get to heaven and there's going to be a few murderers in heaven. Okay? And if you wanted to broaden the topic to people who hate each other, there's probably going to be a few of those. There's a fabulous passage in 1 Corinthians. We won't talk about it, but there's a fabulous passage. It gives this long list of really bad sins. And it says, if you're doing any of these, you're not making it into the kingdom. And then it says, and such were some of you. But you repented. You accepted the grace that God has bestowed through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What this is saying is if you are a, well in this case, hating the brother, and are unrepentant, you are a murderer, 
And you'd better watch it because eternal life does not abide in you. That's a pretty scary thought. There are people who have killed people and repented, confessed, accepted Christ. And guess what? You'll be meeting them in heaven. And there's a lot of people, no, there's some people in our church who hate the guy at the end of the row. And you know what? I'm not here to judge anybody's salvation. But God is saying, that person could be in trouble. Wait, but they, they're so righteous. They just talk so pretty. But they do not love the brothers. The illustration I use all the time, I do not judge the condition of somebody's heart. But the scripture gives us certain warning flags that something may not be what you think it is. And if you hate the guy at the end of the pew, if you hate the guy at the church down the street, who, in your more rational moments, you have to admit, has accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and is probably a Christian, then that is a warning flag that the truth does not abide in you. By this we know love. Okay, we're talking about how we know that we're in Christ. We do act, uh, righteous acts and we love the brothers. This is how we know that we love. And this is what started last week's discussion, by the way. In our world today, love is an emotion. Love says, I have good feelings toward you. So I'm sitting here thinking, yes, I have good feelings toward everybody in this room. <sighs> I'm okay. I love everybody. By this we know that we are, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And just in case you didn't, want to hear a specific example, he's going to give you one. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, that's us, remember, several, several times in this book, he has referred to us as little children. John is the elder statesman of the church. He gets away with that. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. First example, Jesus. How did Jesus demonstrate his love toward us? He died for our sins. We could just stop right there. It always amazes me. People who question the love of God because they didn't get a new pony or a new car or a new job or a new whatever, okay? As if God hasn't done anything for them recently. This is how God demonstrates his love for us. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I've mentioned here, here before, I have two sons, and I really like them. Guess what? I'm not sacrificing either of them for any of you. Just not going to do it. God does not have to prove anything to us. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we had this long talk working through the book of Mark, remember? Because I told you, every week for about four weeks, don't get the idea that Jesus is caught up in some situation that he can't get his way out of. No. Every step of the way, he could have said enough and it would have been over. But he didn't. He laid down his life for us. And John turns and looks you in the eye and says, you are to lay down your life for the brothers. Now that's interesting because, you know, I can honestly say that I think that if the situation arose, I would lay down my life for my wife and my children, no problem. Now, I might not live tomorrow for my wife and my children. I may do my own thing. But in my mind, I have, oh, this idea that I would do it in some extreme circumstance. Yeah, I mean, some really, you know, the terrorist is breaking in the door. I grab my machine gun. I don't have... Anyway, you get the picture, right? But I'm not willing to lay down my life. So to make it even clearer, Jesus says, how about laying down your stuff? God's given you a bunch of stuff. All of us have stuff, okay? Some of us have more stuff. Some of us have less stuff. But we all have, in the eyes of the world, a lot of stuff. And you have a Christian brother who needs some stuff. What do you do? Well, bless you. I'll pray for you. I'll think about it. No. You pull out your stuff and you say, how much stuff do you need? That's how we demonstrate love. What's the opposite of that? Loving your stuff. I was always amazed you read about Oswald Chambers. You know who Oswald Chambers was? Um, Oswald Chambers believed in that verse that says if somebody asks you for something, you give it to him. Now, subsequently, he didn't have much stuff. He didn't. But you know what? God always took care of him. Now, let me step aside for just one moment. Just one moment. We are to be, you know, wise as serpents and innocent as dove or whatever it is. It is quite possible that that person begging for money at the corner is a scam. I don't know. Probably is. I've told you one of my favorite stories. I was in the neighborhood market. And this guy walked up to me and he said, are there any good churches around here? I said, yeah, there's lots of good churches. There's one down there. And he says, I need some baby formula for my baby. And I said, okay, go get it. I'll pay for it. He said, well, they don't sell it here. 
He didn't want the baby formula. He wanted the cash. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I mean, why would you be in a store that didn't have the baby formula that you needed? Anyway, so a month later, I'm in the Albertsons. The same man walks up to me. And I said, I know you. And he goes, no, you don't. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> it was a scam, okay? But in our quest to not be taken advantage of, sometimes we neglect to remember that there are people within the actual community of believers who have needs. That need can be physical stuff. That need could be time. That need could be somebody to talk to. That need could be a lot of things. But you know, I've got an appointment in an hour. Sorry, I can't talk to you. I'll pray for you. And guess what? We're not laying our, down our lives for anybody. And here's the verse that you need to remember. Little children, little children. He is saying this in the kindest grandparent voice he possibly could. Little children, let us not love in words or talk. Oh, I love you. Pat, pat, pat. Bye. Now, I think we ought to speak lovingly to each other. But guess what? John is saying, that's not evidence that you are loving the brother. That is not evidence. We can all talk about loving one another. I can sit here and tell people how much I love every one of you. And John says, let's not do that. Let's not, not do that. Let's do talk lovingly about each other. But rather, let our love be shown in deed and in truth. Now, the deed one is easy, right? What does it mean? It means to do something. Okay? Sometimes this is simple. Somebody calls you and says, my car's broken down on the side of the road. Your first comment should be, I'm on my way. Then you can work out the logistics, right? Your first comment should be, I'm here to help. What needs to be done? That is loving indeed, not in words. And we know people who do this. We know people who have demonstrated this. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret, though. If you're telling people about what you're doing, you're violating some other instruction about, yeah. Remember, the whole, what is it, sixth chapter of Matthew, do your acts of righteousness so that nobody knows. Remember that. That's deed. That's an action. But what does it mean, deed and truth? That's when it gets a little harder. Because you see, 
Um, the cocaine addict comes to you and says, I need a thousand bucks to buy some more cocaine so I will be taken care of. And truth says no. But truth doesn't say no and walks away. Truth says no, how can I really help you? We are not abandoning the righteousness of God to meet the needs of the brothers and sisters. We are elevating the righteousness of God by meeting the needs in truth of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Because you know we're a big community, not Christ Chapel community, but the community of those who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We're a big community. And sometimes there are some really bad problems within that community. And living in truth says, I am going to help you. But that helping you may be sending you to prison. That helping you may be helping you get the treatment that you need. That helping you may be something other than what you really want at this point in time. And guess what? That's love. Now, my mind says, but I don't want to be sucked into this. I don't want to be sucked into the effort that would really take to help you through this situation. In one sense, sometimes it's easier to slip them 20 bucks than to actually get involved in the situation. I had somebody tell me one time, good Christian, and he was kind of saying this as a confession. You know, I hate sharing the gospel with people. What if they accept Christ? Then I have to disciple them. And that can take a long time. And he's right. He is right. We don't want to admit that, though. We don't want to admit that we don't want to spend the time. We don't want to give up our stuff to help the other person. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Remember, this is all about knowing that you're in Christ. It isn't working to do this to be in Christ. We're looking for evidences. By this we know that we are in the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because He keeps His commandments and do what pleases Him. We keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which He has given us. <sighs> this we know, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. 
That's a strange verse. What is he talking about? Generally, I'm thinking about my heart condemning me because I've done something wrong, right? I did something wrong. The Holy Spirit kind of pokes me and says, guess what? You did something wrong, which drives me to confess and repent to turn and not do that. And that's what I think about when I hear the phrase, my heart condemning him, me. But here it seems to be, my heart is condemning me, but God knows the truth. Sometimes I don't feel like I'm abiding in Christ. And I let my feelings drive my life. And God has to step in and say, guess what? You're seeking after righteousness? You're loving the brothers? You're cool. Take care of it. Sometimes I need to be reassured that I am, in fact, in Christ. Sometimes I need God to remind me. Now, this whole idea of your heart condemning you is a lengthy topic, and to me it's actually quite interesting because over in Romans chapter 14, remember this whole discussion about not doing something that leads the weaker brother astray? And it says, every one of you needs to be convinced in your own mind that what you're doing is correct. And that phrase always bugged me because it just seems so much like the Old Testament phrase, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. I think it's okay for me to rob banks. So if I think it's okay, it must be okay. No. That's modern relativism gone berserk. But it says you need to be convinced. And in that particular case, they were talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols. The problem is, is in, in Romans chapter 14, when it talks about being convinced, it isn't just, I feel like it's the right thing to do. You know, we study the scripture to know what God would have us to do. We talk to those who are in spiritual authority over us. We talk to our Christian friends. We investigate, and through that, we convince our minds that we're doing what God wants us to do. It's not just I woke up one morning and said, you know what, I think I'll dump my wife and go after the cute young thing. No! Why? Because the Bible says it's wrong. The elders of this church would say it's wrong. And most of my Christian friends would say it's wrong. And guess what? It's wrong. But sometimes I feel like I'm wrong because why? I'm trying to love the brothers and the world hates me. And the world hates me and sometimes I need God to come up to me and say, guess what? I'm on your side. I don't care that the world hates you. Trust me, I'm on your side. Let's read through this again. By this we shall know that we're in the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What does that mean? 
how many movies have you seen where someone tells somebody, follow your heart? Guess what? That's baloney. Okay. Our heart can be deceived. That's why we don't rest our faith in our heart, in our feelings. We rest our heart in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart. As C.S. Lewis would say, sometime you just eat a bad dinner and you feel bad. That has nothing to do with God. But we feel bad. God is greater than your heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. What are you supposed to do tomorrow? You are to keep his commandments and do what pleases God. That's pretty simple, actually, but we make it really hard. But wait, Kyle, we were saved by grace, yes, so therefore I can do whatever I want. No. But that's the way our thinking works. I can fall into this sin, and God will forgive me because he has to. Red flag, waving the red flag. Remember? No. What? At the end of the day, are we supposed to do? We are to follow his commandments. Okay. In this situation, what does God instruct me to do? Well, the brother, the person who I am convinced is a Christian, needs something. And I have something. This is not rocket science. What does God want you to do? Give him the something. Okay? We follow his commandments and do what pleases him. To me, it's interesting that distinction because the scripture tells us in certain situations what to do. Very specific situations. Okay? Do this, don't do that. Don't lust, don't murder, don't covet, don't do that. It tells us. But at some point, we just need to ask ourselves, in this situation, what would please God? Now, you know what that requires, right? That we have some understanding of what pleases God. How do we learn what pleases God? We read the Bible. The Bible's pretty clear. This is what pleases God. It pleases God that you love your enemies and your spouse and your fellow Christians. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Believe in the name of Jesus Christ. That is believing the right stuff. Loving one another, that's doing the right stuff. Orthodoxy right belief, orthopraxy, right practice. I believe the right stuff, and I do the right stuff. And just in case your 
concern. Go back to chapter 1, and when we mess up, we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and we move on. But if we're not believing the right stuff, and we're not doing the right stuff, it is a warning that we are not abiding in Christ. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. He has given us the Holy Spirit. But guess what? There's other spirits. And that's next week's lesson. Let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, help us to love each other in deed and in truth. I pray, Lord, that if we have not accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we would do that. If we have accepted, I pray, Lord, that we would demonstrate the acts of righteousness and demonstrate all of that by loving one another. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.